Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and for the last month, maybe probably more than a month, we have been working our way slowly through the Lord's Prayer. And this week we come to the final phrase, and lead us not into temptation. Again, like we have the previous weeks, I'm going to read the entirety of the whole flow of the passage so as not to lose uh, the tone and the fuller context of what Jesus is teaching. Again, Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not leap up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to Him. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to meditate on this. This one short passage here for well over a month, it feels like. We thank You for the time to really dig down deep with what Jesus teaches us about you and about him and about us in this prayer and what privilege it is to come to you in prayer. So we ask, as he teaches us, to ask that the Holy Spirit would be amongst us now, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that this word would go deep within our hearts and our minds and even our feet, that we might follow you everywhere. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we ended our time in a somewhat... I guess you'd say tough spot, uh, discussing some of the problems that have arisen when we misinterpret what Jesus means uh, when he says, for we ourselves forgive everyone who sins against us. And Jesus' teaching uh, from Matthew 18 on how his people are to forgive is given really particular uh, clarity, if not showing how deep this rabbit hole of forgiveness really goes with his parable of the unforgiving servant. And if you'll remember, in that parable, the, the story that Jesus teaches to illustrate what he means, uh, the king's servant owed the king a debt worth roughly in the neighborhood of 200,000 years of labor. I can't put a dollar amount on it, but it's, it's a lot, right? Such a debt implied not merely that the man was clearly in over his head, but a man, the man had stolen, in some sense, from the king on the regular. And when the king called the man to account and considered that this man was previously living with this debt, he was carrying it supposedly as if life was just fine, he was obviously unable to pay back the debt. And he begged the king to be patient, 
so that he could pay it back in time. And of course, this is a ridiculous request. This would be like a man guilty of murder standing before a judge and pleading for time so that he could raise the man from the dead. No. Even so, in his kindness, the king forgave the debt, which means the king himself ate the debt and took the loss himself. Soon after, this newly forgiven man, he found a neighbor. That means he went looking for him, who owed him 100 days' wages, which that too, that's a real debt. And he seized him and he choked him and demand, demanded immediate repayment. And the choked man begged him for time to repay him. And he says exactly the same thing that the, the newly forgiven man had said to the king. But this newly forgiven man refused, refused to forgive his neighbor and threw him into prison. Now, when the king heard about it, he in turn threw this man he had just forgiven into prison, presumably to die there. And it is because, because of his refusal to forgive his neighbor, as he had been forgiven, that the king cites for throwing him in there, saying, you are a wicked, wicked servant. Jesus then ends that illustration and that story with these really chilling words. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, that is, his disciples, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what Jesus assumes is that his people who have been forgiven by God, and our sin is a debt that far outweighs 200,000 years of work, will in turn be the kind of people, because they are united to Christ and the Spirit is at work in us, who will also forgive the sins committed against us, the debts that people have that they owe us. But this is where it starts to get difficult. So even as the man in the parable's debt to the king, just in terms of the sheer volume of it, far outweighs anything anyone owed to him, still what his neighbor owed him wasn't nothing. No, it was in fact very much something. What forgiveness requires then is the whole teaching of Scripture, both of the Old and New Testaments, and therein skill in the art of wisdom. And Jesus assumes this as, this as well. So the temptation, however, as we talked about last time, and this is where it gets sticky, and this is why I want to return to it. The temptation is to shortchange the difficult path of wisdom and nuance and instead move to relativize what Jesus teaches. So we think, okay, this is clearly an impossible ideal. I mean, even forgiving someone 77 times for the same sin as Jesus tells Peter to do before he tells that parable of the unforgiving servant, even that seems unrealistic. That seems like he's being idealistic. And so we can't really forgive everyone like this. I mean, some sins, yes. But there are other sins, I don't think so. Absolutely not. Which raises the question, okay, by whose standard are we determining which sins are forgivable and which ones are not? Which sins can we realistically be expected to forgive and which ones not? So would we say forgive a gossiper and a slanderer? You know, a sin so common that we hardly see it as sin anymore, more probably as an annoyance than anything else, despite the fact that God says he hates such things and they are an abomination to him. 
a sin that is on par, at least in God's eyes, with the heinousness of murder. So, for example, teenage girls, they can make rattlesnakes seem gentle, especially in the world of social media and Snapchat, but perhaps because they appear sweet and because girls will be girls. Their abominations are, well, they're more realistic to forgive. We can let those those go. What about a young man from a good home? Good young man who commits manslaughter in a drunken state by accidentally hitting a middle-aged homeless junkie crossing the street at 3 a.m. Do we really, do we really want to ruin a young man's life? for a stupid decision that he regrets? I mean, after all, that junkie, he had his chance. He's made his decisions. Never you mind, I mean, well, I know he was somebody else's son too, but still, he's not like this young man. So does the standard change if you are the one repeatedly being gossiped about and the gossip has ruined your reputation and maybe cost you your job? What if it wasn't a homeless junkie that the young man hit? What was rather a young mother of three on her way back home with her toddler from the ER who was struggling with RSV? To relativize what Jesus teaches is to sentimentalize it. It's to give it more value to, say, some people as opposed to others, effectively denying their humanity in God's law. Well, the second temptation is to read Jesus as meaning that that forgiveness negates justice altogether. It's like the scene in the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou?, where Delmar, along with Everett and Pete, have broken out of a Mississippi chain gang. I mean, that's the whole premise of the movie. And, And they're on the run when they come across a church out in the woods, dressed all in white, lined up to be rebaptized in a lake. And Delmar rushes to the front of the line. He is... He breaks in front of the entire church. He's immersed, and when he comes out, he says, that's it, boys. I've been saved. The preacher done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's a straight and narrow from me. From here on out, in heaven everlasting is my reward. The preacher done said all my sins have been washed away, including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. Neither God nor man got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. Now, in response, if you know the movie, the leader or pseudo-leader of the group, Everett, played by George Clooney, replies, that's not the issue, Delmar. Even square with the Lord, Mississippi's pretty hard-nosed. And despite Everett's obvious cynicism over Christianity and baptism, he's actually right. While God's forgiveness, the justification through his son, the adoption into his family through his son, and sanctification of our whole person through the Spirit, it does make us right with God, and he forgives all our sins. Still, our sin has practical and real ramifications. So the reality is the practical effects of some sins are less heinous than others. That's why insulting someone doesn't typically have the same typically have the same practical effect as murder, even as both sins are actually deserving of death. So, for example, as a pastor, there's not a day, there is not a day in which I do not sin in thought, word, and deed. And while 
All those sins have real practical effects affecting my relationship to God, it's certainly to my family, and to you in ways that you don't see. Still, none of those sins are of the type that would disqualify me from being a pastor. There are plenty of sins that would. So say I was the man who was drunk driving and committed vehicular manslaughter. God certainly can forgive me of that that sin, even as the family of the dead man can forgive me. But that does not remove the practical consequences of my sin that require that I be prosecuted and receive jail time. And even as I'm sure I would be remorseful and repentant, my sin is such that it requires that I be removed from being a pastor. And even after I had served my jail time, that in itself does not mean it is wise or good for me to become a pastor again, even as I should rightly be welcomed as part of the people of God. So all too often, churches have wanted to overlook the entire body of law in Scripture, laws that both provided for forgiveness, even as it addressed the real practical consequences of sin. And we have wrongly insisted that forgiveness means we just overlook the practical effects of sin. So if you knock over a Piggly Wiggly in Yazoo City, God can and will forgive you even as he will be with you in prison as you serve out your sentence. It's why you've probably heard of pastors or or churches who have counseled women to remain in abusive marriages with the hope that their submissiveness and kindness will win over their husbands as if they are like martyrs bearing witness to their oppressors with the hopes that by their blood, the man who pledged lifelong faithfulness to her will be saved. Marriage is a relationship of covenant faithfulness not of oppressor and oppressed. It is the exact opposite, in fact, of a martyr to those who try to kill them. No, by his abuse, the husband has broken his covenant vows to his wife and has forfeited any and all rights to his relationship with her. So to not defend, to not defend the woman is it's an incredible breach of justice, akin to standing by as we watch a bully Pound a younger, smaller kid, all while saying to the kid, just take the beating, man. Maybe this will cause him to come to Christ. Even as to allow the man to continue in his violence against his wife is to fail to love him as a neighbor and in turn to endorse his evil. It would be like a pastor counseling a husband to keep giving his alcoholic wife booze in the hopes that she will recognize his generosity and in turn want to quit drinking. That's utter foolishness. So while our sin, and I mean all of our sin, is forgiven by God and we bear it no more, still there are real consequences to our lives that sometimes require justice. So Jesus' call to a life of repentance and forgiveness is simultaneously beautiful, and it is. I think every time we do the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, it is beautiful, especially before the Lord's Supper. But it is also really hard, and it's demanding, and it is so often uncomfortable and just makes us out of sorts. 
well. That takes us to the final phrase, and that final phrase that Jesus teaches, I think is easily misunderstood because of English translations, even as I don't know how they could translate it really any differently into English. When we read, and lead us not into temptation, and then with Matthew's version, but deliver us from evil, we kind of naturally read it as, if we pray for God not to lead us into temptation and to deliver us from evil, that means he will keep us from facing temptations. And in turn, well, we will not have to endure with any evil. It's kind of like Paul's famous phrase from 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is often interpreted as God won't give you anything you can't handle. Which again raises the question, According to who? You know, at what point did God think, you know what? I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have gotten to such a point that they're going to be able to handle a fiery furnace lit up to over a thousand degrees. No. In reality, what Jesus teaches with, and lead us not into temptation, is more akin to, and let us not succumb to temptation when it shows up. That's really kind of the tone of the Greek that's there, as in, be with us, O God, and strengthen us as we are in the midst of this trial, as we are in the midst of this temptation. And Paul assumes that we will regularly face temptation, daily, if not hourly. And those temptations, while hard, and they are hard, they're common to all people, all people, regardless of whether they are Christian or not. So every married couple... Male and female, Christian and non-Christian, are regularly tempted to break their wedding vows in a multitude of ways. But for his people, God always provides a way of escape, a way of escaping the temptation. That is, a way of saying no to it. So when Paul says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, he's not saying God won't keep you from circumstances that are really hard. You very well may face a literally literal fiery furnace, and you would not be the first. But two things to quickly consider. First, temptation is always, in some measure, the enticement to break faith with God and in turn to reject His ordering or His intention for your life. And that, that enticement certainly can come from those outside of us or advertising or something like that even as probably more typically it comes from our own sinful desires within us. So just think of it this way. Did God really say that thing would kill you? Does God really have your best intentions at heart? I mean, will these laws that God has put into place, laws put into place, supposedly for your good and how a law could be good, I have no idea. Can it actually make you happy? Now, as everyone knows, freedom from law is what makes you happy, right? Temptation always looks and feels good. It's why advertisers, and I did a search for this, and it's across the board with unbelievably different kinds of products. It's why advertisers will say it's sinfully good. Because as we all know, if something is illicit or forbidden, if it's sinfully good, think about that, sinfully good, it's way more thrilling way more pleasurable. It's like what R.C. Sproul once commented. He said, we sin because it is pleasurable. 
The enticement of sin is that we think it will make us happy. We think it will give us joy and personal fulfillment, but it merely gives us guilt, which undermines and destroys authentic joy. So if you see me at Bessemer Academy on the sidelines in a basketball game, I am facing the temptation every single time to believe that giving voice to my frustration and the lack of justice on that court in any manner I see fit will actually bring me contentment and joy. And it does not. What it does is it forces me to come confess my sin to you and repent. That's how that works. So temptation always is the opportunity to make God out to be a liar, only to find out that he was actually telling the truth. Second, God can and does test his people. Let me say that again. God can and he does test his people, and the purpose of that testing is to reveal our hearts. And this happens over and over in Scripture with his people. So, for example, as a coach, it's good for, the, for whatever team I'm coaching to, to play weaker opponents because it, it builds confidence and, and team chemistry and, and all that stuff. But we will never know if we're actually a good team without being tested by other, stronger teams. It's in the fire, the difficulty of the testing, that the reality of what we got with our team is actually going to be revealed. So put it in different terms. It's easy to be faithful and kind on your wedding day. But it's a bit harder on day 29 when there is a real fight over how many pillows a couch requires to be fully a couch. Even as it is different, a completely different dynamic in year 29, when your spouse is diagnosed with a disease that will permanently change the dynamics of the marriage forever. Even as we are not to put God to the test because he is always good and faithful and has demonstrated that over and over again, he does put us to the test to reveal whether our hearts are in tune with him or not. And this testing is for our good. After all, just consider, it was the Spirit of God that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And that testing revealed Jesus' heart and his love for the Father and his faithfulness to him. But think of it this way. God allowed for Joseph, Joseph of Genesis, to be repeatedly tested or tempted both when he was with the people of God in Canaan and when he was alone among pagans. And in each case, what was ultimately revealed was not that Joseph was a righteous man, though he was certainly good and faithful, but rather how good and faithful God was to Joseph. It's like the remarkable scene from Luke 22 in Jesus' words to Peter. Jesus says this, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. That's temptation and testing. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, he knows that Peter will fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. See, Satan wanted to test Peter, and he did. And he did. He wanted to sift him 
like wheat, which tells you the nature of how these tests actually do work sometimes, that they will run you through. But Jesus had prayed for Peter that he would remain faithful. Now consider that Jesus, even as he had prayed that, he knew that Peter would be tested and would actually betray him in that testing, and yet he had prayed for him and continued to pray for him. It tells us just how faithful God is to his people, and the testing actually revealed that to Peter. It revealed how unfaithful Peter was, but how so much more God loves him and was faithful to him. That Jesus anticipated, think about this, he, anticip- he knew that Peter would fail, that he anticipated restoring Peter and already encouraged him to future faithfulness after his betrayal tells us just how long-suffering and future-committed God is to his people for our good. So returning to what Jesus teaches in his prayer, God does not merely allow us to undergo testing, but he often leads us through it, even as he has promised that he is faithful to us and is with us in the midst of us. And in turn, he teaches us to reach out to him. That's what this prayer is. Reach out to him in the midst of it. Like Peter, who initially walked to Jesus on the water. Do you remember that scene? He initially, initially walked out to Jesus in great faith, but then he turns and he sees the storm. He takes his eyes off his Jesus and he starts sinking. And what does he do? He cries out to his Lord, which is the right thing to do. This, of course, goes against what we typically feel or experience in such times. In the midst of the trial or the temptation, it often feels like God is absent. And I have to imagine that's how it felt for Adam and Eve when the serpent was tempting them, as in God is nowhere to be found. And he does not see, he does not know what we are doing right now. Or with Jesus in the wilderness, replaying the events of Genesis 3 as the faithful and true Adam, enduring with that same serpent, the Satan. Despite being the Son of God and led by the Spirit to that place, it seemed as though Jesus was utterly alone to endure the test, but he was not. God was with him. Consider what David says in Psalm 23 as really hitting on all the same kinds of themes and same concepts of what Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer. See if you can hear this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Give us this day our daily bread. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Forgive us our sins. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows as we forgive those are in debt to us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All of us, all of us regularly face temptation. And sometimes those enticements, they come from outside of us, of course. But more often than not, they arise from our own sinful hearts. Likewise, God does test our hearts. As Hebrews 12 says, he actually disciplines and trains us for our good, revealing what we love most and more so revealing that he loves us. It is through the sanctification that comes through the testing that God produces health in us. It doesn't always feel like that. It's like learning how to do push-ups. How is this possibly good for me? No, it is actually for your good. It grows us into maturity. He is with us in the testing. He is faithful to us even when it seems as though he is nowhere to be found. So for good reason, all throughout this prayer, all throughout Scripture, you can hear subtly underneath it one of the most important things of Scripture. Our God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Well, let's go to him in prayer because he is good. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. I don't think there's any better summary than that. You have blessed us in your Son. You have atoned for all our sin. You bear with our continual sin even now, even as you are the great teacher who works through your Spirit to sanctify us in heart, in our minds, and our actions. Thank you for how you lovingly walk with us and will not let us go. Thank you how you have promised that this life is not all there is, that there is even more life to come where we will know your Son face to face. We will be filled with the Spirit. We will be resurrected from the dead. And what a life that will be. And we already have a foretaste of it now. Thank you for this kindness and this grace. We pray all of this in our great Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.